Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Cancer Fight Podcast, recorded in Louisville, Kentucky, and produced by the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Cancer Fight aims to highlight the stories of fighters and survivors of all forms of cancer, as well as educate the public about prevention and awareness. I'm your host, Dr. Whitney Jones, a gastroenterologist and founder of the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Welcome to Cancer Fight. Today, we're speaking with Dr. James Hotz, physician, director of the Albany Medical Clinic in South Georgia. I've been had the opportunity to know him through the National Colon Cancer Roundtable. Uh, he is a nationally known physician in his work in public health and advancing uh, agendas across the spectrum. I'm going to call you Jim instead of James. Sounds Welcome good. to the podcast. Welcome to Cancer Fight. Great to be here. Great to be here. Well, we appreciate it. Well, Jim, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're, you're probably going to have to give us the abbreviated version because uh, the podcast only lasts 10 hours. But if you can give us that short piece of where you, where you grew up and how you started and how you rolled into the position you're in right now, because it's really, it's an amazing story. Well, I uh, grew up in Fremont, Ohio. I was um, one of five children. My dad was a factory worker. Uh, we didn't have health insurance most of our time. And, um, you know, the, the reality was is that I, I worked hard, studied hard, um, got the opportunity uh, to get a good education, uh, went to Cornell, actually played football there for a while, got recruited there, um, but got my eyes open to a larger world. Um, Harry Edwards, who did the Olympic boycott, um, was actually starting a black studies program, first in the country there. A lot of the guys I played football with there it opened my eye that, you know, this world was not equal, was not the same as I saw coming out of rural Ohio. And the idea and the theme then was, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So I carried that off to medical school at Ohio State, the Ohio State, um, relatively conservative school. I just couldn't see the connection between being part of the solution and what we were doing there. And one of my advisors there, Dr. Manny Zagurnis, went on to become dean suggested I go to DC and work with a physician, Dr. William Roy from Kansas, who was doing health legislation. So we did the HMO Act. Uh, I worked on the National Service Corps, putting people in underserved areas. A lot have gone into Kentucky and Ohio and rural areas in Georgia. Um, and he got beat by 5,000 votes by um, uh, in, in Kansas. And so um, he told me to listen um, when he ran for the Senate, he said, I want you to volunteer to join the program. So I ended up, you know, trying to volunteer to do that and um, ended up getting kind of, uh, wanted to do public health, encourage my um, sister and brother-in-law to join us. We said we'd go any place in the country. Jimmy Carter was president. They kind of tricked us to go down to South, South Georgia. Um, but what was interesting is that was exactly what I was looking for. So, you know, I always tell my young recruits that I bring into the practice, um, you know, if you really want to be part of the solution, um, your values will take you there. Pretty soon you'll understand whether or not those are core values or uh, values that, um, you know, you, you, you propose that you have, but you really don't have. Well, we started that, and um, since we've started, we now have 28 offices cover a large part of the state, had the first rural HIV program in the country. We've done a lot of very interesting stuff. Um, have seen over 4 million patient visits. 
Um, so we've got a big group, a very diverse group. Um, we we uh, cover people um, um, from womb to tomb. Um, it, we consider our job is to take the, take care of them uh, for better, for worse, sickness and health to death do us part. Uh, and that's what I think a good physician is. So working for a community health center has allowed me to do that. Um, we've recruited a whole bunch of people in. Um, but as you start delivering health care to people, you kind of realize um, there's some real challenges in the way we do it. Um, a community health center allows me to see people regardless of the ability to pay. They lose their insurance at the factory when it closes, when Cooper Tire closed, we were, still could take care of these folks. I was like Doc Swindle took care of us. My dad didn't have insurance, but you know, you walked in there, no matter what happened, Doc Swinton was there. So, um, so that's how I kind of got down into Southwest Georgia. Um, worked actually in Plains, Georgia to start with, which is one of the reasons the health commissioner, this kind of trick sleight of hand, and they ended up making that movie Doc Hollywood was based on the person who actually recruited me down here, where you kind of get a community that um, uh, kidnaps you for service. But sometimes fate takes you to places you didn't anticipate to be. Um, but then, and, and I tell my kids this, if you follow your values, you make choices. And it's kind of like George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. You know, he was working at Bailey Savings and Loan because every time there was a choice to be made, he followed his values and ended up, you know, having a wonderful life. So that's the story I give to my kids and I would give to you out there. Um, I just turned 70, so, you know, don't mind the ramblings of an old man here. <laughs> Amazing because so many, uh, so many organizations have come out of your involvement uh, that, that were not there. We take them for granted now. Uh, AHEC, which is a huge uh, organization here in, in Kentucky and most rural states, uh, that came about from, from your involvement in Washington, right? Yes, um, we did the AHEC, we did the health planning agency. Um, we actually helped pioneer some of the uh, disaster and flood recovery. Um, we saw a case like uh, 220 of HIV, realized there was no HIV strategy, and we considered HIV a primary care problem. Now, this is in the 80s. Interestingly, Dr. Fauci was leading the charge back then. And so, you know, we just said, um, hey, we can do this better. We brought the President's Commission down for AIDS and said, you know, what should a primary care process look like? And we did a strategic plan. And part of what Dr. Roy also did, he did the Health Planning Act. So I actually worked at a health planning agency to start with. Uh, I got my um, uh, MBA or my master's in, in health administration um, in the field. Never really went to do that. But, you know, you get enough career training and, and you can get stuff done. But that's how we kind of got involved in this. And um, I was a big proponent of community-oriented primary care. Uh, Jack, Dr. Jack Geiger, who started community health centers, picked this up from Sydney Kark in, in South Africa. And the idea is a community health center should look like the community and fulfill the needs of that community. So you ought to be oriented to the primary care needs, which implies that you uh, are proactive and not you know, just sitting back there and letting things happen and that you know you ought to be oriented towards the needs of that community. You refer to the AIDS epidemic and, and that was really foundational for me because I, and I really didn't realize it until I got into public health how much that impacted me. 
Could you give us a visit back to what that was like in the pre-viral age and how much of an impact that had? Because you shifted into something that there was a great strategy for eventually, colorectal cancer. How did your experiences in that HIV era in a rural town in Georgia impact your move towards that preventative space that you work in so much now? Well, I, you know, I remember the patient uh, ground zero um, walked in to see this person who had CNS syphilis. Um, um, he uh, had um, uh, a um, uh, cryptococcal meningitis as well, um, was there with his boyfriend in the room, and behind me, CNN was on talking about gay pneumonia in San Francisco. And I looked at him, looked up at the screen and said, is there any possibility this could apply to you? And, you know, he said, I think there is, and I'm worried. So I said, okay, you know, I'm not here to judge what you do. I'm here to try to get you better. But what we need to do is get a blood sample, send it to the CDC, because, you know, they had not yet discovered the virus. We had no idea what spread it. There was a lot of rumor. Um, and um, we ended up and look at the helper uh, suppressor cell ratio, and he was that index case, um, and um, ended up passing away. Um, had another person die, and people um, were so afraid of the transmission that the person died in the intensive care unit, and nobody would remove the body. Um, you, you looked at that and said, "Well, you know." And shortly after, it became a virus. And then you got AZT available, but it was so expensive, you know, and you had to do contact tracing, you had to do um, discrimination control. We actually brought Ryan Weitz, uh, who was a hemophiliac young, who got HIV, like Arthur Ashe did from blood transfusions, brought his mother down, you know, to get the community behind us and say, you know, we can't discriminate against folks. We got to let them come out. And a lot of this is, you know, bringing people together. So what we did is we, we were the first people to testify in the Senate uh, about rural HIV. It so impressed them that uh, the HIV, President's HIV Commission actually flew down on a C-130. Uh, and we, we did a strategic planning, a one-day session. And we said, well, what is missing? And we'll use these funds for, because uh, Ryan White funds were stopped becoming available, we'll make it available. And we had a great partnership with our health director, Dr. Paul White, who was uh, helped develop the short course treatment for TB. You know, used to be TB, you know, was 18 months, nobody finished it, never eradicated it, but they did direct observational therapy and the importance of being involved, getting people there. So the idea is that we can be smart about how we deliver healthcare and make a difference. We did put the HIV, put the clinic in and, um, uh, somehow somebody found out that, you know, that AIDS was there. There happened to be, interestingly, 10 different people with AIDS in the neighborhood. But when they found out there was an AIDS clinic there, somebody read spray paint, uh, put an F-bomb in front of our thing and said, you know, no AIDS here. Well, our local church came down and said, that doesn't reflect our values, and they repainted the clinic. Um, but, you know, you learned a lot about the fact that, um, you know, our job is to treat in the most effective way possible, translate those effective research out there and put it into the field. 
Um, so that was a real learning lesson. But what you realize, it took a lot of people to make that happen. And you had to be strategic in your view. Right, but you've had such a vertically oriented career where not only are you thinking about the social issues, but then you're, you know, developing the, the, the processes. But I guess it all arises from where you're, you're, you're on the ground level where you're seeing these things really work or really not work and those lives that are affected. How important is it to be on the front lines when you're the person who's further up the food chain making these policies. Because one of your great quotes I, I read was, you know, it doesn't really work well in bureaucracy once they get a hold of it. So what is it like to translate, you know, what you've, you've taken as the physician and be all the way up that chain? That's, uh, that's well, critical. I think part of it is, is realizing that you have to take a perspective of planning that, you know, um, Failing to plan is planning to fail, and that you can't do this alone. And I always like to, and, and we have a big Marine base here, and so the military is important in our part of the state. And so when we brought the commission down, we actually drew a battle plan, and we showed that HIV was going to, in our health district, kill a thousand people, cost over a quarter of a million, a quarter of a billion dollars, and if we had a group of people coming up from a submarine from Cuba, and they're going to land and do the same damage, what would we do? You know, how would we do it? And so we sat down and said, well, you know, community health centers are the Marine Corps. We go places nobody else wants to go. We establish beachheads with emerging populations. But you know, if you're on the beach, and you find a positive fit test, and you got to get one of those GI guys like Dr. Jones, he's like that fighter jock who's up in the plane, doesn't get his feet dirty. All we want him to do is drop a colonoscope down that wreck, you know, colon and get that polyp out of there or get that cancer out of there. But I can't do my job without being connected with, you know, the specialist. Um, the health systems are like our aircraft carriers. You know, they carry all that technology out, but they're extremely expensive. They don't go into shallow waters. They sit offshore for a while. They don't go into these little rural areas or park communities. Right. Um, and, but you've got to have somebody who established the beach sets. And public health are the spooks. They're the, you know, they're the guy who's got the information, tell us where to bomb, what to go. Um, and a lot of docs just are willing to be the army. You know, once we've established the beach, they come ashore and do their job and do it well. So it's working together. Now, we found that analogy to be very helpful because what we basically say, you know, we've got to have one common battle plan. Each has to have their role. And then we have to decide when we allocate resources, who do we give resources to, to make a difference? So in this situation, you know, the resources went to developing a, a primary care HIV clinic. Um, and then, you know, colorectal cancer, there's a different, you know, mechanism, but it's basically the same process. Um, and I love, a, there's a, an old uh, general, um, and uh, uh, he's uh, Brigadier General Thomas Meredith, and he did a lot of tremendous stuff in Vietnam. You know, normally it took you six months to put an airfield. Well, you know, six months, the battle line could change tremendously. You know, he did it in six days. And his theory was lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way. Right. And so, you know, what we do is we try to lead, uh, but we have to bring people on board. Um, if people want to follow our lead, that's great. And, but don't obstruct, you know, if somebody's got a good idea. 
And, uh, and that's how we really get stuff done. So in the military uh, uh, area we're in, what's your favorite part of the OODA loop? The what now? The OODA loop. Uh, that's what they designed what they when they were, they were trying to teach uh, air battle in the Korean War because they were getting shot down by MiGs because they were faster and bigger. And so they developed a loop which was observe, orient, decide, and then act, and then observe again. Right. So, uh, you know, but what you're have... talking about is classic OODA loop thinking. Sorry, I didn't prep you on that, uh, that, that, that no. phrase. Well, What's your favorite me, part of that? Observing, deciding, me. or acting? Excuse me, Professor Jones, but uh, no, we do the same thing, plan, do, study, act, which is how we do quality cycles. So we go out, we look at an issue, and we say, how can we do it better? Let's study it, let's try something, you know, um, and then, you know, see what our results are, and then loop it back. So it, it's basically, you know, you've got to be evaluating what you're doing and doing some feedback. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's how we change the quality work we do. Um, and, you know, so everything kind of comes as a problem. You know, we, we had a big flood hit us. You know, you couldn't cross bridges. We did 550 sorties over the river where we went to our offices and kept people flowing. And I tell folks, you know, you never know the next disaster that's going to hit. You know, we had 9-11. You know, we had a Category 3 hurricane hit here and we're shut down. Um, so there's always going to be something. The pandemic is just another one of those issues where we've got to be reactive and flexible. Um, but the, the thing about it is, is that we still got to do our primary jobs. And, and that's where like, you know, diabetic management, hypertension management, colorectal cancer screening, you know, it's, it's right. basically what everybody should have access to and something we should be doing. For sure. Well, one of, one of my thoughts out of the pandemic uh, was how important it was to be proactive if you knew it was coming down the road. And again, even though you have to react to the, what's going on today, that's my single take-home lesson, which will trans, you know, transfer us into talking a little bit about colon cancer, because there's probably no greater opportunity to be proactive in colorectal cancer. So walk me how you became, you know, from this country doc who, you know, is connected to every organization that has a, an acronym to it, to being involved in the colorectal cancer world. What was that transition? How did you get introduced or how did you insert yourself? No pun well, intended. Yeah. Well, I actually did a bunch of flexible sigmoids and did quite a bit of inserting myself in people's colons. But, um, you know, a lot of times um, it's the power of the survivorship. Um, so, uh, and also the provider, the power of not surviving. Um, shortly after I came down here, um, got a call and, you know, my, my father developed abdominal pain and my country doc, Doc Swin, who'd taken care of him, um, couldn't figure out what's going on. Um, you know, did the traditional stuff you did back then, you know, flat plate of the abdomen and that. This is 1979. Um, so I took him back where I trained at, at The Ohio State and he ended up getting a lap, um, found out he had metastatic colon cancer. Um, and you know, I remember the last thing he said to me, um, it's pretty good distance from Albany, Georgia um, to uh, Northern Ohio. You know, last thing he said was, when will I see you again? And the answer was, I never saw him again. He ended up getting what sounded like a pulmonary embolus, you know, from being in bed and, and dying. Um, about four years after that, my uncle Barney 
um, who had a, um, a local restaurant and bar called the 818 Club in Fremont, Ohio, where we always, after every football game, you know, we actually called it St. Joe's Bar and Grill. We had a Catholic school, Catholic church was half a block away. So everybody cycled in there, the coaches, and, and we had a very good team and we always celebrated there. Uh, but, you know, those were two funerals we went to in that church. He died of colon cancer also. Neither one made it to 65. Neither one saw their their grandkids. And, you know, my dad had 18 grandkids and he had eight. So this magic 818, uh, which we'll talk probably about later, came up. But, you know, what you realize is that people die from that. Now, we thought we could make a difference. And, you know, I don't know if Dr. Jones, if he's old enough to remember the old rigid sigmoidoscopes, that was part of our annual exams. You know, you'd ram a 22 centimeter rigid tube up people's, yeah, exactly. And uh, I don't remember how many cancers we picked out, but it was somewhat unfulfilling, but you know, it was part of the standard routine exam we did annually on folks. Um, and that's, you know, back in the, you know, early seventies. And then, all of a sudden in 1993, two things happened of enormous consequence. Dr. Jack Mandel in Minnesota um, showed if you did a, a hemocult test, you know, on 10,000 Minnesotans, you had a significantly uh, reduced chance of dying of colon cancer by 40% if you got a, a stool test, a quiac test done that you mailed back in incredibly cheap. Uh, and at the same time, Dr. Sidney Winard, and he was at um, Sloan Kettering, who was doing endoscopy, said, well, we're seeing these polyps. What if we remove the polyps? What happens? Well, they didn't die as colon cancer as much. So in one year, you had two discoveries, both in the New England Journal of Medicine, saying, you know something, we can do population management and take a bite out of colon cancer. And for me, that was really, you know, okay, my dad died, do other people, Uncle Barney died. Um, and so we started doing it. I learned how to do flexible sigmoids. We did a bunch of it, did a bunch of the stool test. Um, but the interesting thing happened is, um, and we've worked with medical students, so I always put research projects. One of the medical students said, do you realize, and I've looked at all your positive stool tests, um, if you have no insurance, you never get a colonoscopy. And I said, that can't be. I mean, these GI guys, they're good guys, most of them. Uh, but, you know, we're used to, you know, in the hospital, I you know, did a very busy hospital practice for years. You know, if we had a GI bleeder, they came in and, you know, a lot of times they were uninsured, alcoholic and, you know, uh, but these guys were great guys. But their front office, if you didn't have 200 bucks, you didn't get in. And for a lot of my patients, they didn't get in. So that's how we kind of got involved in saying, you know, we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. So I, I mentioned this to the GI guys and they were, they were mortified. They say, of course we, we see your patients. I said, yeah, in the hospital, if they bleed in the hospital, you scope them, you do great work. But you know, you've got barriers that you, we don't understand. And when people talk about social determinants, well, there's a transportation barrier, but there's a financial barrier and 200 bucks for a lot of my patients 80% of whom live below 200% of poverty, that $200 was just like a no-fly zone, no-go. Um, so, so we got involved in it, and then we started the Cancer Coalition. We did some other stuff, and then we, you know, we marched forward 
And what we showed, if you put a navigator there, they would show up with good bowel prep. And, you know, what we really found is that there were solutions to the problem. Can I ask you a question? Did, were you doing all this in Georgia before you sort of stepped onto the national space? Were you just doing this in southern Georgia with your team and your local guys? It was community and primary care. Like we took on AIDS, like we took on the flood, like we took on some other issues. Um, you know, we decided that um, we would do this. Now, we had a very careful partnership. And the other thing that I tell my young doctor colleagues, you got to be politically involved. So I was uh, chief of staff of the hospital. I had 250 doctors vote me in, went on to become chairman of the board of the hospital. Um, so when our hospital administrator's um, bonus plan came into place, I said, well, you know something, you know, uh, people in New York know our bond rating, but we ought to know our community needs. We ought to have something in there showing that you provided some community benefits. We actually put a community benefit piece as part of his, and part of what he had to do is show that he was reaching out and providing services people wouldn't get them. So, you know, that allowed us to do that. But what we found is our oncologists who were big money makers for the hospital, you know, were tired of treating, you know, stage four That's colon cool. cancers. Yeah. So we had other advocates and we just brought them together and said, you know, let's, let's, you know, be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And that was one of the things we'd always tell them, you know, you know, you are part of the problem, you know, if you're right. poor. And that's where health disparities come is when you have highly effective technology like colon cancer screening that's not evenly distributed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you look at that and you say, well, 1993, um, how long does it take before we have 80% of our population screened? I mean, this stuff works. You know, right. You know, the, the ag industry is really great. They have ag extension agents. So if we have a boll weevil problem, you know, and it's wiping out our cotton crop in South Georgia, University of Georgia has an ag extension agent, they got a researcher and Monsanto puts money in it. And next year they come up with a product that works with the spreaders down here, gets out there and wipes them out. You know, they have this translational research infrastructure in place, which unfortunately we don't have in medicine. All right. So when did you transpose this local community knowledge did you get recruited to the round table or did you find out about it and then and well, we go were up doing there? It. Yeah, we were doing it. Um, and I got on a National Institute of Health committee and the NIH was looking at um, the integration of public health and primary care. And I said, well, you can't integrate public health and primary care without having the medical neighborhood involved. Because no matter how much prevention you do and how much primary care, we're always going to need people like our gastroenterologists, you know, something's going to come up and we're going to need a specialist and we're going to need this special thing. So we've got to be involved. And so part of the integration they were looking at, they looked at maternal health and poor child outcomes. They looked at cardiovascular disease and cancer. So I said, you know, why do we get real complicated? We know that colorectal cancer screening works. You know, this was about 20 years after, uh, 10 years after the, the study came out with Jack Mandel, which was 2003. I said, why don't we just use that as a model? So we brought in HRSA, which represented community health centers. We brought in the CDC. And so the CDC guys said, well, you know, you've got these quality metrics you make all health centers report on. And I said, well, why don't we report colon cancer screening? And it was kind of like, well, you know, um, 
you know, a lot of times it's hard to do. I said, yeah, but we're doing it and other health centers can do it. And so uh, I ended up writing this section on, you know, colorectal cancer screening. And so it was kind of a model. Um, I then got asked, you know, to present this to, um, At the, round the, the round table was actually looking, because one of the challenges the American Cancer Society had is they started looking at the medical home criteria a lot of it was the insurance company's needs of preventing readmissions for congestive heart failure, diabetes, but cancer screening is something you don't make money on for five to 10 years. You know, so none of those wanted to integrate that in the medical home. So it ended up being part of the medical home. We ended up sticking in it. And so I ended up being asked to represent the National Association of Community Health Centers at the round table. And we just, and I gave a presentation. I said, you know, it's, it is, complex it requires a lot of partnerships but it's doable um, and it is the basis of of health um, poor health outcomes and health disparities when you have something as effective as colon cancer screening that's not evenly distributed to all populations so that's that's kind of how I got on that you know the larger stage but it's you know it's just yeah. And what I say, what I am, I'm kind of like the guy in the trenches and I stay in, I still, I've got my white coat on right now. I said, you know, I, cause I think it's the, the, the sergeant who's at the, the lines really know what the battle's like and what makes it work. Um, there's a guy up on a hill that can look out and say, here's where we want to go. But we're the guys out in the field saying, well, here's how we get there. All right. Well, that's a great analogy. And I, I, I love to study military folks because generals get it done, right? That's the, right. that's their job. But you sound also like the quartermaster and being able to, you know, bring resources to the table and give direction because a, a stack of stuff is just a stack of stuff until you get it into the right, right person's hand. So, so clearly, uh, and I guess Tom Weber was at the round table at that time. And for anyone listening, it wasn't really until about 2000, 2002 that Medicare even recognized colon cancer screening with colonoscopy. So it took almost a decade from the discovery of the polyp cancer sequence and uh, uh, the great work for Sid Winower to, to re-manifest in the clinical practice on a regular basis. So I th think we're talking about the mid-2000s now, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Right. So, uh, so, so once you got to the round table, uh, you integrated, Tom Weber was there, uh, how did you come up with the great concept of 80 by 18? Because I think goal setting is one of the biggest right. issues that people, you know, unfortunately don't participate in in their life. Well, we were sitting in 2013 and, um, you know, the public health folks got these quasi 2020 goals that were non-inspirational. I mean, you know, people don't move. I mean, the coach at halftime doesn't come in and said, well, you know, if we can get at least five or six first downs, we won't be that bad at showing. It's, you know, we're 14 points down, but we can win this damn thing, you know? So part of, you know, the way you get exceptional um, performances by having exceptional motivation. So as we sat down and we looked, we had all these other numbers and, you know, I started going in my mind, well, um, see um, five years from now it'll be 2018 that's 25 years after those seminal studies I mean in 25 years we can't 80% so let's get there now it so happened that my uncle Barney 
had a bar on 818 Krogan Street in Fremont, Ohio, and it was called Barney and Tom's Bar, but nobody could remember that. It was, they had really good food and, you know, all the salesmen would come by. And so, you know, they kept on saying, oh, that's that one of that 818 Krogan. So he got frustrated and he asked this, this marketing person is, why do they always use that? And he says, it's called an alliteration. You're 10 times as likely to remember an alliteration as if you just have random names together. So, you know, dawned on me with, there was my dad who died of colon cancer, my uncle Barney, there are plenty of people like that. And, you know, shortly after he died, Uncle Barney died, the 18 burned down and they rebuilt it, but it was never the same without Uncle Barney. So you realize you can't replace people. And these are people that could have lived, you know, 15, 20 years longer had it not been. Mm. So, you know, part of that motivates you to say that. Um, of course, um, um, when Dr. Cole, you know, who was head of this thing at that time came up and he said, where did it come from? They couldn't believe it came from a, my uncle's bar. They actually, the lady went online and saw, yeah, there's, he said, do you ever have a fishbowl? They go, yeah, that's 24 ounces of Stroh's beer and a chilled big mug. And I said, I've had a couple of those. when I was Imagine young. Catholics drinking. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, but, you know. So how did you we, sell this? How did you sell this to the guys? Well, we, I'm, you know, we had a contest. Everybody had a chance to put in. We, I put an 80 by 18. And the marketing folks looked at it. And when they put it before a group of, you know, American Cancer does things really well. And they know how to get the word out there. And they, when they tested it, you know, it was like nine to one above anything else. You know, it just there. Plus the idea that 25 years later. Now, what it did is it gave us an aspirational goal. It kind of sent the benchmark of what we think excellence should be in a primary care practice. And now there's a lot of things that now revolve around, you know, you got to be above 80%. The other thing it allowed us to do is to measure. So they did a, a modeling study and it showed that you'd save 203 lives from 2013 to 2030 if we would get our screening rates to 80% as a nation. That's 20,000 people per year not dying of colon cancer. So I use that number like when I do our Georgia Roundtable. I say that's 453 people that are dying because we're sitting below 65%. Right. Unlike the great people in Kentucky who've done so real well that we're so jealous of. And I pointed out to my folks down here, I said, listen, if they can do it in Kentucky, we should be able to do it anywhere. They can't even play basketball anymore. <laughs> oh my goodness, goodness. Oh, well, uh, for those of you who don't know, Jim's always roughing me up about Kentucky and UK. He doesn't know I'm a UofL graduate and alumni, but nonetheless, <laughs> I'll take it with, with that. So you, you taught me the phrase that I use lots of times when I'm working with folks, a big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG. Right. And right. I think that is so critical for people. And I think the younger in your career you are, the bigger the goal ought to be because you've got some runway to get there. Tell me about goal setting and what kind of role it's played for you. Well, um, you know, I've always had the feeling, you know, go big or go home. You know, the idea is, is that, you know, we can win and we ought to set our goals great. Um, and I can remember in, in high school, I was our valedictorian and I gave my address, but I copied John Kennedy saying, we'll be on the moon by the end of this decade. And when he did that, um, he did it at Rice University, it was like 1962 you know, our rockets were blowing up every time they went up. It was, it was one of the most 
audacious things. And then the guy who wrote the book about big, hairy, audacious goals, I think his name is Powell, it's a business book. It's basically saying, you know, a big, hairy, audacious goal is highly aspirational, requires intense cooperation, is not easy to do, but is doable, but it takes exceptional cooperation, focus, discipline, and, and measuring your way along. So this is what, you know, President Kennedy did. I can remember when I gave my, my addresses, I was talking, and we'll have a man on the moon by the end of this decade. And this was 1968, and it was still really, you know, people thought I was crazy. But I also said we would cure the common cold and cure cancer. Well, I was wrong on those two. But, uh, but you know, if you think about some of the cancers we've cured, if you think about what we can do with colorectal cancer, um, but, you know, the real frustrating thing is, um, and I chair our state cancer plan, is we've got all these highly effective um, technologies that we're not applying. You know, lung cancer screening is the same. But colorectal sitting there, 25 years, it's just, you know, it's just too long. Right. Getting a little bit into your style, <clears throat> your leadership issues, what's your definition of leadership? Uh, you lead a health clinic, you've grown a variety of organizations. Just for the folks out there who are in the cancer business or wanting to get into it, how, how does Jim Hotz describe his leadership vision? Well, it's interesting. When I was in medical school, I took care of the old football coach at Ohio State, Woody Hayes. And back then, with a heart attack, you were in for a month. And he was writing a book, You Win With People. And, you know, he was, I mean, he was like Bobby Knight. I mean, he had this explosive personality, but he knew how to manage and handle people. And what you realize, your great success is making certain, and he told me the most important thing you do is recruit the right people. So I, I spent a lot of time on recruiting recruiting people into these efforts um, and making certain they have, you know, values that are concord with your values. Um, you know, the quarterback's got to stay in there and, you know, hold in the pocket an extra second. He may get hammered, but that may be how long it takes to get the man open. He does his job. So, you know, getting people that share your values, getting people who you can inspire. Um, and most of the time, you know, a good leader, um, you know, is doesn't let people know that he's leading, you know, he's, you know, he's allowing other people to reach their potential. Um, you know, that's, you know, what they always describe the quarterbacks are game managers, you know, they allow everybody, anybody else to use their talents out there. So I think one of the things we do is leadership, but, but you have a clear focus, you know, you, you know what winning is. Um, you want to get to 80%. You let everybody know we're not there. Um, and then, you know, when people are not doing their job, you know, you've got to be forceful and let them know. And then, of course, you know, leaders lead by example. I mean, you've got to do the stuff you talk about. Well, so do you, were you compelled on this journey that you've been on or did you choose to do it? What would you, how would you parse those out? Well, you know, it's very difficult to, um, to say how people get motivated um, to do the things they do. Um, but, you know, when we started our organization, um, our vision was quality health care for everyone. And having a, a kind of a moral compass that tells you where you need to go and how you get there is how you end up getting to places that, you know, 
40 years later, you're proud you're at, but it's a struggle. But part of it is allowing that moral compass to drive you along. I love the, you know, it's a wonderful life and George Bailey, because if it goes through the movie, you can see all the way through the movie, there was always a decision. Do I do this or that? And he always did the this, that was the right thing to do. And as people reflected back at him, they said, well, you've had a wonderful life. Well, it didn't feel like that a long way quite often. Sometimes it was pretty challenging. Right. But as he got to the point of wanting to jump off that bridge, you know, the, the little angel came down and said, well, you've had a, why would you do this? You've had a wonderful life. Don't allow other people to, to uh, set the agenda for your life. You know, if you look at it and you take a retrospect. So that's, that's one of the things I recommend people doing is follow their compass. Um, and, you know, when I'm recruiting somebody, I say, I know what our organization values are. I don't know yours. I know what you say they are, but until that first round of fire comes, you don't know if that military guy is committed. If you've seen that movie, Captain America, get all these other big dudes out there. But when the, light, the grenade went out, who's the guy that jumped on the grenade? You know, right. that was Captain America. So, you know, we look for grenade jumpers, people that are willing to kind of lay it on there. Because, you know, there's always more money you can make. There's better places to live than Albany, Georgia. Uh, Louisville may be even a nicer place to live than Albany. Mm -mm -mm -mm. <laughs> well, listen, you've got, have done so many things and I, and, and I guess I feel like I'm always a lot of ideas, but you've turned so many of your ideas into impact. Is there a formula for that? Um, I think it's an orientation. It's, you know, you know, um, you want to make a difference, you know, and, and one of the other things I say when I'm recruiting people, um, you can make money in life or you can make a difference. And quite often it's very difficult to do both. If you're trying to optimize the difference you make or the money you make, a lot of times you're going to be a conflict. And that's when we can see where your compass is. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. If you're making a difference, you'll make money. And you'll be a lot happier when the money comes than if your full focus is making money. Because the guys I went to medical school with who were just trying to find as many paying patients as they could and rack up as much money, you know, you go to a reunion and they're, all they're doing is whining, complaining about, you know, the government cut me out of this amount or do you know what Medicare's paying now? I says, I don't know what it pays now. You know, I've raised four kids. They've all gone to medical school. They're all good doctors in primary care. And, um, you know, like George Bailey, you know, it's been kind of a wonderful life, but that's kind of a crossing point where it, it hits you a lot of times. And uh, that's one of the things I always say when I recruit. It's interesting, Woody Hayes, when he would recruit somebody, and if you know Ohio, you know, people, you know, if you are uh, know, don't know somebody, you go to the front door, but if you're these little, you know, um, row house snap, if you, if you know them, you go to the side door because that answered in the kitchen. So Woody right. would always go to the side door, he'd be sitting in the kitchen and see his recruit come in and see how he treated mom and dad. He said if he didn't treat mom and dad with respect, if he didn't see that team function there, so if you don't treat your own parents well, how are you going to treat your teammates and me? And, you know, there was a lot of wisdom in, in that, you know, because those core values and how you work in a family structure, a lot of times are going to tell us how you're going to work in an office structure. And, you know, being a team player means, you know, having those values, being willing to do it, but also, you know, being willing to um, 
um, understand other people's needs and, and getting the best out of them. You shared your age with me and <clears throat> I want to sort of get into what keeps you driving and pushing. Is there a sort of rest stop for you on the road or is it when you're, you know, you're off your game? What's, what, what's the future look like and what, more importantly, what compels you to keep pushing? Well, it, it's funny, you know, you, you go to your um, um, 50th high school reunion and you ask folks, what are you doing? It says, well, you know, um, I thought that I'd like to golf and fish, but you know, there's only so much golfing and fishing you do. So, you know, I always good with my hands. So I started, um, you know, uh, doing some remodeling business and I just enjoy building stuff. And other guys say, well, I've got a hobby. I'm at home. I got my own shop. I build furniture. And I said, well, you know, I've got my hobby too. I'm building a health system. You know, it's kind of fun. You get to tinker with things. And if you enjoy the work you do, you no longer, have work, you know, you basically have a hobby. And not only that, people pay you for doing it. So it's it's not bad. So I think as long as you enjoy work and you can maintain your creativity. And the other thing is, um, you know, people do get involved in creative events. You know, they, you know, make a ship in a bottle or they build furniture. Well, some of the stuff we do is is highly creative too. It's actually kind of fun to try to figure it out. You know, I, I was always a big puzzle guy and, you know, gosh, we got so many pieces floating around <laughs> in the puzzles. It's nice to kind of figure out how we, you know, bring them together. Right. You know, like one of the great challenges in the puzzle is how do you take the enormous egos of our subspecialists, like our gastroenterologists, and plug them into a health system and make it work? <laughs> well, I, I think you and I both look at uh, our challenges as puzzles rather than mysteries, which right. really compels you to solve the puzzle. So exactly. I think, exactly. I, I, think I think that's great. Speaking of puzzles, tell me, tell me how the COVID has affected you guys down there in, 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 in Georgia, just when it comes to the day to days of your operations. Um, we never shut down. Um, our productivity went down significantly. Um, we had 48 um, employees get sick, one die and two spouses die. So we take this disease very seriously. Yeah. Um, very hard to get people to come in, very hard to get them to get procedures done. It's taken a lot of explaining about the gastroenterology. Probably the safest place you can go for COVID is to go into gastroenterology and get a colonoscopy. Right. So it's taken a lot of explaining. We've seen a precipitous drop in our screening, as happened nationally. Um, and I can see my monthly screening rates. We've gone down 8% since March. Um, eight, eight zero or eight? Eight, eight, eight. How far did you go down at the dip when you were in, uh, uh, you didn't, so you didn't, you didn't shut down at all, but your volume went down. Right. Our so volume went down precipitously. <clears throat> I mean, we, we went right. down, you know, like 80%. So and you're back up to 92% of your pre-COVID yeah. volume. And so a lot of it is figuring out how do you do. And the interesting thing is I ended up um, for two months, um, did a virtual practice called uh, 752 visits and a 3% no-show rate. Um, and what you kind of found out is that a lot of the social determinants that make like travel and, and that, and so I was able to drive down my no-show rate tremendously by doing reach, outreach. The other thing, as I found out, is a lot of people couldn't manage themselves at home because they didn't have a blood pressure cuff. So right. I mentioned this to our director of nursing and our staff, and he said, well, you know, why don't we just take it out to them? So we actually had a foundation give us blood pressure cuffs, um, uh, pulse oximeters, and uh, thermometers. 
Um, and if they needed an A1C, they'd go out. And we ended up now, we're putting in a mobile van to go do outreach to folks. So we think it really changes. And of course, with them, what we're switching over now to is male fit tests to send it out. Um, so, you know, part of, you know, this whole game is being flexible and dealing with change. But it, it, you know, the COVID, I mean, Albany was kind of ground zero. We had a super spreader event with two African-American funerals. And, um, you know, we had a full ICU and got slammed. We actually had a mortality rate greater than New York City um, wow. in the first month. Um, yeah. So it, um, you know, it was a real challenge. Um, so it profoundly affected the system. But um, as I tell my young docs, I said, you know, there's, there's always something affecting the system. Um, right. You know, uh, dinosaurs are extinct because they didn't evolve. You know, sure. it's the people that evolve quickest and change their most nimble. Those are the ones that thrive in a changing environment. Yeah. You must have read my show prep because that's going to lead us right into the lightning round of <clears throat> some, some issues that are uh, currently on the, the, the thoughts of people, particularly in the colorectal cancer space. But uh, so let me ask you a couple questions. So 45 versus 50. Where do 45. you think we're going to go? 45. We, we, we don't start at 50 anyway. We start at 54 and a half. So, you know, let's go to 45. No doubt, right? It's going to come. USPSTF is going to roll with that. The, the whole data was based on the incidence rate. Um, and 15 years ago, when it was first set at 50, well, if you look at the incidence rate now at 45, it's the same as it was at 50. All uh, right. So, so you're a big proponent of stool-based testing. So um, you, you like the... So go ahead. No, options. You know. Options, shared decision-making. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so you do mailed fit programs as well as yes. offer colonoscopy for people who choose that as their primary method? Yes, yes. Colonoscopy okay. is, is easier. It's every 10 years. If they've got the insurance that can do it and they want to do it, it's great. Okay. Uh, stool DNA versus FIT? Uh, I think stool DNA is probably where we're going to go. Um, they got built into the price of it, a navigation part of it. The cost of navigation every year tracking people down is pretty significant. The great thing is it's, it's, it's a cheap test. And, you know, instead of having 100% of your people needing colonoscopy, only 10% a year need it. So it's a way of managing. And if you have a lot of uninsured people, it's a very prudent and highly effective way of managing a population. Absolutely. Do you use Nate lay health navigators in your systems? Uh, are you expanding that or where does that stand for your system? Um, we have health navigators. We have population managers who actually go into the charts. See who's not been screened. Um, and then we have a, uh, we started a cancer coalition who actually helps provide some of this. We have huddling. We do, you know, the evidence-based interventions of putting on the chart saying it needs to be mm -hmm. done. Um, and you know somebody can get a fit test. They don't need an order from the doctor. Uh, and then if it's positive, um, we have a navigation system to get them to show. We have a 95% show rate, 90% good bound prep. And those are all. I mean, this doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you know, we yeah. obviously. I told you we started back in you know the the 90, 90s uh, on doing this, and it's just it's it is an evolution you know, to try to build, build your practices. And it needs to be maintained. Staff turnover, you know, somebody's got to go in there and say, hey, we've done this before. 
How long is it going to take us to respond to the early age onset colon cancer epidemic that we're seeing? Um, I would like to see us do it within a year or two, but if you base what happens in most of the translational research we do, um, it's probably going to take us 10 years. Um, I mean, it's, you know, lung cancer is still our biggest killer. You know, the low dose lung cancer screen is highly effective. Um, and it's now out seven years and we're still at 6%, 6% of the people should be screened. Um, we're at 5% in Kentucky, even though we have double the national uh, mortality rate of lung cancer. So right. and the I, I agree area, with The you. Appalachian area, and I've looked at those numbers and it's, but what's encouraging is the can-do it attitude that Kentucky did around colorectal. It is a national model and it's incredible. I mean, it, you know, I really, you know, as I, say, I mentioned it to our, I said, you know, the people in Kentucky figured it out. You know, it's been great leadership. You've had some really good ideas, good legislature too. And, and part of what you realize is that, you know, we ain't the only kids in the game. You know, we don't have the money, we don't have the purse strings and there's gotta be a legislative loop in this. And if you can find people who understand, you know, that legislative ones and, and physicians and clinicians who spend the time, that's what they listen to. Yep, for sure. And survivors, you know, yeah. I mean, nothing's better than survivors chaining themselves up to the fence, you know, in the <laughs> legislature. I mean, um, and who's gonna say something to a cancer survivor? Cause it's something we all fear. You know, it's right. something we all fear. And um, it's what keep, you know, keep us up at night as doctors and as, as human beings, as patients. Yeah, families, you fa think about oh, yeah. it with your family every day. Uh, on time screening and benchmarking family history. When are we ever gonna be able to actually not only collect the family history, but utilize it, particularly in the colorectal cancer space where it's so well-defined. I mean, obesity, diabetes, those are a little more amorphous, right? Colon yeah. cancer is so well-studied. When, yeah. when are we gonna get it done? I mean, I'm, I think we're the five to 10 year, unless we do some real, um, you know, real groundbreaking work on this stuff. Um, the, the electronic health record, uh, and I worked with the Marion Cancer Society and we'd worked with a couple vendors to try to figure out how do we put this in there. And what you realize it's not set, it's more of a billing system than a population management tool. Right. And, um, right. you know, and people, you know, they got their meaningful use dollars for, you know, doing e-prescriptions and putting in problem lists, you know, not for yeah. reducing colon cancer screening rates. So as a primary care then, linking, linking that family history to genetic testing, you think is on that same timeline. Do you think industry who has a financial piece in that, that testing market is going to come in and backfill some of the, the, the work that we're not doing? Um, possibly. I don't think it's the... Um, uh, electronic health record industry, you know, <laughs> I don't think those guys are, you know, they've sold their product yeah. and they've got their next generation one. And, you know, some, you know, there's a national um, office that supposedly are making them more accountable, and more effective. Um, it's the office of national coordinator, but, you know, I, you know, I don't see this kind of, you, you know, dimensional Don't you change. think we're going to have to benchmark it and, and pay for performance and measure it to, to get it to happen? Because, this is another place where technology is yeah. light years ahead of our operational utilization of it. We yeah. diagnose 
one out of 10 people with Lynch and, and, and maybe, you know, two out of 10 people with the BRCA and the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. That's a dramatic opportunity for prevention, not okay. just cancer detection or, or determination. How are we going to accelerate that change? 10 years is not okay. I'm, you, I know you feel that way and I feel that way. What's, the, what's, what's our, what's our uh, plan? Well, you know, I do think it's going to require, um, you know, some type of, um, you know, going beyond doing business as usual. There's going to have to be some landmark legislation. As much as people can complain about Obamacare, you know, the reality is no copay is pretty damn revolutionary in all pre-existing conditions. So somebody I think is going to have to link you know, the payment system and the federal government is the big guy that does that um, with the performance that we're looking to get. And, you know, this genetic stuff, uh, you know, um, so Larry, they, they broke the human genome and mapped the whole thing out. And I think that was like in 94 or five, that, right. or maybe it was 2003, it was 2004, yeah. So, I mean, we're over 15 years into doing that. And the idea that, you know, we've got these connections and we're not, you know, connecting a family history. We don't even record a family history. You know, we can put in that um, a grandfather died of breast cancer, grand, um, um, mother, um, a grandfather died of breast cancer, mother died of breast cancer, five of mother's sisters died of breast cancer. There's not a BRCA light that comes on and says, you ought to be screened for BRCA and here's the information you need. You know, they, they don't have that decision-making uh, support built into these things. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a Peter Drucker fan and, you know, I do believe you've got to measure it to manage it. And yeah. somewhere along the line, I mean, it ju just on behalf of Tom Weber and Dennis Anon, you know, yeah. we have got to find a way to do that. And I think in colorectal cancer, you know, again, genetics are weird. They don't really care what cancer you have. It just lights the, the light right. because there's so much crossover. But somewhere down the road, we're going to, you and I, with your set, we've got to figure out how to put that in the primary care doctor's hands as a tool because we're the, we're the catchers. You guys are the pitchers. Yeah. And part of developing a forum that can translate this into the political clout and have the advocacy it takes to to put that down there. Um, you know, I mean, I think um, you know, the, our current reimbursement system does not incentivize that kind of performance, obviously, right now. All right, last question in the lightning round. Any disruptive technology we should be looking for or AI? Uh, and again, uh, I, I think the EHR has true artificial intelligence because it's not very smart, like you said. What can we be looking forward to to, to sort of help because this new revolution in genomics and proteomics, it's upon us. Right. Well, somebody has got to um, figure out how do we incorporate that into the electronic health record so that that data mining goes on and material comes out, that decision support that has been promised. Um, and um, uh, it's interesting. Um, uh, Lawrence Weed, who started the problem-oriented medical record, um, uh, had a group of us meet with him because um, he was doing this thing called knowledge coupling. Because he said, you know, there's certain things in a history, like if your back pain gets worse when you stand up, spinal stenosis is now a 90% probability. So this was in the early 90s. 
you know, when electronic records were first coming in, and he said, we ought to be able to do knowledge coupling, you know, which is really what artificial intelligence is all about. It's okay, here's what works, here's not. So we've been talking about this for a long time. Um, and I don't know if it requires a you know, smart political investment, if there's enough capital out there. I would think there's probably enough, um, you know, to, to do something like that. Um, but, you know, um, uh, it, uh, fundamental things do change. And when you align payment with things that make sense, um, when I was in college, uh, I was a chemistry major at Cornell, and uh, my advisor, uh, I'd finished all my coursework, and he wanted to know what senior project I was. And I said, I'm interested in going to medical school. He says, well, I got this great thing I'm doing. We're, we're putting a, a crystal in, and we're putting an x-ray beam in, and then we move it one degree, and move around this thing called the Fourier transform. He says, we can recreate that crystal for industrial use. He said, if you really think of what you could do, you could put somebody's head in there, and you could recreate the head virtually. And I remember him saying that. I said, man, this guy must be smoking some dope or something. I mean, who could ever think? Because we had key punch cards and, you know, IBM 360 didn't have as much memory as your phone. phone. And this guy had this vision. And five years later, I'm sticking people's heads into a machine. EMI that was made out of Beatles, you know, had the electronic out of England. And we're doing it five years later, five years later. So, the, you know, that finding the technology that can transform into practice. Um, and I think, you know, we, we're just going to have to find people to do that. That's not my skill set, right. by the way. But I think that it's, the potential is there. You align the financing behind it um, and the technology, and we can probably do this. But it's something we need to do. Well, you've had a pretty storied life. Any uh, change that you think that we ought to be making in the medical industrial complex uh, that you could share with people so they can have a vision for perhaps where they should put their energies and focus? Well, you know, um, I think the change is making certain that this system is accessible and that we have primary care for everyone. You know, I mean, I think that without doing that, um, it's interesting, Dr. Roy, who I worked with, um, he did this landmark legislation. He worked with a guy named Rogers out of Florida, and it was called the Happy Trail legislation. Roy and Rogers, if you're old enough to know that was a theme song of uh, Roy Rogers, uh, who happened to be right up the river in Portsmouth, Ohio is where he came from. Um, but he, he um, had this vision about the way we pay for healthcare is stupid. And so, you know, he said what we, and he wrote the HMO Act, and I have a copy of it on, right beside me here, the HMO Act of 1972 saying, you know, why do we pay a la carte? Pay one amount, keep somebody happy and healthy. Pay the primary care doc one amount to keep people. And it was based on how the people in the miners in Kentucky and Tennessee, they pay the doc. And the doc realized he did a lot less work if he kept people healthy, got the shots and then in front of things. So, you know, I think that, you know, what we need to do is probably figure out how do we do a health maintenance prepayment thing? Because I don't know how you feel about getting nickel and dimed and all these codes and, you know, the relative values of, you know, I mean, it's just nuts. You know, pay me once a year, give me enough money, and my job is to keep people healthy. And, you know, I've got to perform a report card to show I do it. 
Uh, and now that's been around, think how long that's been around. Um, when we put that in the hands of, you know, companies who wanted to reduce the amount of, um, you know, money that was went out of the system and stayed in their pockets, um, they call that the medical loss ratio. You know, we had the vision of medical loss ratio would be 5%, you know, for profits and administration. People are getting it down to 75%. So only 20, 75% went for healthcare, 25% went in the pockets of the people that did it. So it's a wonderful tool, but it's like a scalpel. Put it in my hands and I'll butcher people. Put it in the hands of a skilled surgeon and you save lives. So I think that that's where it's got to go. What we're doing right now does not make any sense. And it is the most frustrating part of my life when I have a coder coming up and telling me about, you know, adding four more digits to a code and doing something. And I, and I say, they got diabetic neurovascular disease. You know, do I now have to get another code for that? That's nuts. Well, it's hard to believe there's a code for a second time you run into a telephone pole uh, and, and don't die, right? I mean, that's, that's what ICD-10 is going to do to all of us. So uh, oh, I know, I know. Well, what a great thing. I, I have to ask one last question, Jim. You know, you know, you have had an amazing career and, and you've been so kind as to share today. In a cancer fight specifically, and I think cancer for you is a, a really healthcare broadly because it's that same approach. What is your prescription going forward for people about how to manage a cancer fight or any fight that they face in their healthcare world successfully? Um, well, I think part of it is if it's a personal fight with cancer, part of it is not looking over your shoulder. Part of it is doing all you can. Um, uh, when we were doing our first cancer screening, I got a call from Sanjay Gupta from CNN, and they said that one of the counties we're in uh, Terrell County had the highest colorectal death rate in the country at 47.5. And he said, we want to give you 10 free colonoscopies up in Atlanta, Grady Hospital. And I said, my hospital's already given me 500. And he said, can I come down and do a program? We did. And then he invited me to do this program with, with Lance Armstrong. And um, it was pretty amazing and all the negative stuff people can say about him. But to be 25 years old, to be facing, you know, 90% chance of dying, and to start a foundation to get people to live strong. And that's the message I give people. I said, you know, it's a wonderful message. Um, I said, how in the world did you go out to your nine hour training ride not knowing you're gonna live, let alone set a goal to win the greatest endurance race in, in athletics? And he goes, I took 12 million cancer survivors with me to cheer me on. I said, that's pretty impressive. So what I try to tell people to do is to take the negativity and to turn in positivity. You know, you can decide to live strong or live weak, it's up to you. Um, and, um, you know, if you can put a, had a camera on, you'd see I got a yellow Lance Armstrong band on, because um, it's, it's a pretty damn amazing thing for a 25 year old kid to say something like that. Um, and to set up such a impactful concept is to, you know, and one of the things he said is that cancer may kill me, but it doesn't need to take away my dreams. His dream was to win the tour, which he ended up winning. And um, he cheated like everybody else was in the tour. It's just with his treatment, you know, he had one testicle removed, so he had to manipulate his testosterone. And he also, you know, had a, a big tumor taken out of his lungs, so he had some breathing. So he learned how to manage his hemoglobin and his, you know, androgen levels better than the other guys because he had to, because he was living strong to survive the disease, but also to be an example. 
So um, you can say a lot of negative things, but you know what you want to do is, is to develop that kind of focus and to live strong. That is a great message, and uh, I doubt anyone listening to the podcast is perfect. So I think that's <laughs> inspirational for for everyone, and we, we'll all make mistakes on in our cancer fight. But the key is having that vision and that focus. Yep. So. Jim, I want to thank you again for being was- my guest today on the podcast. I, I have learned so much from you, and certainly the nation has benefited greatly from all the work you've done, in addition to your work in colorectal cancer, to improve the health of uh, your, your neighbors. Well, I appreciate it, and you do great work, and you know, um, I hope the audience you know, can listen to what we've had to say today and um, help to improve their lives and you know, spread the word about colon cancer and, you know, let's cut down this uh, 25-year wait to get technology out. Again, Jim Hotz, physician, advocate, uh, community health leader, national health leader. Thanks again for being our guest on Cancer Fight. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today on Cancer Fight. Keep up with our work, follow Colon Cancer Prevention Project on all major social media platforms and visit our website, kickingbutt.org. Special thanks to our producer, Keaton Jones, and our director, Maggie Cunningham. Until next time, fight on, cancer warriors.